titled this series called Dimensions of Love because it says in 1 Peter 4, above all, love each other deeply. And so uh, uh, love isn't mentioned a lot in this book, but it's an above all. And so what we thought would be interesting is looking at all the different aspects of, of life and truth that 1 Peter talks about and to see it as dimension and to see them all as dimensions of love. That as we look at all these different parts of the Christian life from suffering to authority to community, all these different things, that actually when we look at them together, they become a, a, a web or a fabric that allows us to see all the different dimensions of what love is. So last week, Pastor Jonathan looked at the idea of hope. And uh, it's interesting to think that hope is actually a dimension of love. If you don't have hope, it's impossible to love. Contrast um, uh, uh, love and hope with sin. Sin is always a quick fix. If you don't have hope, you just sin because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and I don't really want to wait and I'm impatient. I just want my needs met right now. But if we decide to love, we actually need to have hope because hope gives us the perseverance that we need to do sacrificial things before we see any kind of fruit. So hope is a critical dimension of what love is. Well, now we're picking up in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at three more dimensions. But let's read through the verses. Uh, we're going to go 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and then we're going to make some comments on it. So here's how it begins. It says, therefore, therefore, because of this hope that is, is sure in Jesus Christ, because of this hope, rid yourselves. Now the idea of, of ridding yourselves of something is kind of like changing a, a set of clothes. Cast off one thing and put on something else. But rid yourselves of all malice. Malice is the desire to hurt others. Get rid of that. Change, get rid of that. Rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. So get all of that. Get rid of all that Beca because like newborn babies, you've been born again. There's a rebirth. You've been now clothed with Christ. Crave, have a new kind of craving of spiritual milk. Long for the word of God so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. You've had this new taste of a, of a new way of living. So cast off the old self, put on the new self. As you come to him, the living stone, we're going to discover what that is because that's just a weird thing to say. Uh, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. And that's a temple, a place where God is going to dwell. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. These are acts of mercy. That's what we're going to offer in this spiritual house that's being built. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him, Jesus, will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, and this is plural, this is an individual you, this is a, a corporate you, 
but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. Have these new cravings. Crave for the word of God. Don't have those old cravings which wage war against your soul. Live such godly, good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So uh, here's what's true about 1 Peter. Uh, Peter has written, you know, the anointed word of God. But I think uh, Peter is a little ADHD. I'm not sure. I haven't read that in scripture, but it seems like it because when you read through 1 Peter, it's uh, this and then, oh yeah, but oh, and that reminded me of it. And then you just, I mean, you read through just a paragraph of 1 Peter and he's finding it hard to keep on track of whatever he's thinking. So fortunately, it's all anointed. <laughs> but unfortunately for us, it's sometimes a little bit hard to follow. Well, what we're, the way that we're going to try to pull together all the different elements that are just found in these, in these 12 verses is we're going to look for three key elements of what a spiritual house or a temple is. So I think we can do it and do justice to the verses if we, uh, we kind of break down all that he's describing and say that there's three main things that he's talking about that are dimensions of what a house or a temple is. And if we value all these three elements, uh, we can actually build a house that is a place for God to dwell, a place for us to worship him inside of. And so let's look at all these. We're going to be looking at the foundation, at the walls, and at the doors. So this is uh, how we're going to go through it together. So in chapter 2, verse 6, it talks about uh, kind of the, the foundation of any spiritual house, and that's Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, there's nothing else that we can build our house on, we can build our church on, our family on. There's no other foundation that's solid and secure enough aside from Jesus Christ. We can't build on our talent or on our wishes or on our clever wisdom. We need to build on Jesus. And here in this chapter, he is described as something called a cornerstone. Now, what is a cornerstone? We're going to put a picture of that up right now. A cornerstone, so Jesus is lots of things, but he's describing himself as one particular thing right now, and that's a cornerstone. And what a cornerstone is in building is it's a reference point. Now, if you're going to build a foundation, you, you want it to be square and, and, you know, properly built. And so you begin with one corner, and that corner becomes the reference point for how everything else is laid out. And if that cornerstone is tilted or off or or uneven in any way, uh, you can't build a square building, and then everything above that will be, uh, will be off. So the cornerstone is critical for the whole structure of the house. It's a reference point. Now, what is Jesus a 
reference point towards? Like, like what needs to be, what is he lining up? Well, it's moral truth. When you look at the book of 1 Peter, there is a huge emphasis on our behavior and living holy and righteously in a pagan culture that might not like us very much. And so he becomes this reference point of what uh, love, godly morality looks like. And so when we're confused and there's all kinds of opinions around us and we have our own evil desires, we come back to Jesus and we say, Jesus, you tell me what's right. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to, how to figure out how to build my life or belong to something. I need you to be the reference point that makes everything right and true and godly. He is the reference point of moral truth. Now, I have been listening these days to lots of people having opinions about what's morally true, about what is truly loving and, and not loving. And here's what I've discovered, that most of the time that we decide what's good or not is mostly based on our own feelings. Those feelings might be quite negative, like a sinful desire or a lustful desire, but they even might be based on compassion or what we think is, is best for people. How are we ever going to be able to sort through all of our feelings and decide what's actually morally best? Well, it's through Jesus Christ and his word. There's, there's no other reference point of what is truly true and ultimately loving, aside from what Jesus says is true in his word. And so this is obviously, as we, as we read in this passage, this is an offense to some people. Some people look at what Jesus says is, is loving and not loving, and they hate it. They hate it either because it uh, contradicts what their sinful desires want to do, or because they don't believe that he's actually very loving, that they actually, we actually, think that we know what's more loving than what Jesus says. And so this, the, the, uh, this verse says, in verse 6, uh, to trust in him. It takes trust but to believe that the Bible is the most loving description of how to be moral and good. It takes trust, doesn't it? Because sometimes you read it and it seems legalistic or uncompassionate or missing some things or just a killjoy that doesn't want us to do what we enjoy doing. But we must trust in him. And as we trust in him, love has the opportunity to thrive. We go, I don't know that I fully get what he says is true, but I'm going to trust that he's going to be my reference point for what good and bad is. And as we trust in him, love, his love, has a chance to win. So here's the first point. We need to obey his moral authority. I mean, <laughs> that, that whole sentence doesn't sound like very good news these days. You have to obey. He says there's a whole bunch of people who disobey the message. We need to obey the message trusting that Jesus Christ is the moral authority 
in my life, in my community, and needs to be the moral authority in our world. Because without him, we're mostly guessing and following our feelings and opinions. And how stable is that for a foundation? Well, it isn't a foundation. Well, this takes faith, doesn't it? But what 1 Peter is inviting us to do is to make Jesus Christ, to trust him, to be our moral authority. Will you let that be true for you? Will you let him be the moral authority? Or will you let your feelings and opinions dictate what is good or bad? You know, one of the things that I, uh, that as, as people become members of our church, there's one thing that matters to me, really above all else. And that is that you and I agree together that scripture is going to be our authority, particularly our moral authority. Because if it's not, then how are we ever going to work through something together? It's almost impossible, isn't it? Because at the end, we're going to have to do this, well, I agree to disagree thing, right? But when, when Jesus is our moral authority, now we're both able to be humble and work through together how to get closer to him because he's our reference point. He's our cornerstone. My friends, it is impossible to walk together without a common authority. And the only right and sure authority is the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that reason, he is described as the cornerstone of the house of God, of the place where we meet God and fellowship together. That's number one. So now we know what the foundation is. Jesus. Uh, I think we've said that once or twice before in our church, but now it's described in a way that I think is very fresh as this cornerstone. So then, what are the walls of this spiritual house that we're to be building? Well, the walls are us. Now, here's what's interesting about this. So we have a person, first of all, being the foundation, and then we have people, the church, being the walls of the house. Well, that's pretty cool, isn't it? It's a very relational understanding of, uh, of where God likes to dwell. It's in the midst of relationship. But then it, it describes us in a very funny way. It describes us as being living stones. Now, what does that mean? Well, fortunately, I've read through a whole bunch of commentaries, and I've never found a description of why we're called a stone. But um, the, the first time I was able to, to go to Israel and study under a man named Aryeh was a number of years ago now. And he is... Uh, I think without exaggeration, has had the most impact on my theology uh, than anyone else. Just he, uh, both his understanding of Hebrew culture, Hebrew language, archaeology, war, music. I mean, he's uh, just a remarkable man who deeply loves Jesus. One of his jobs in the army was to map out the Sinai Desert. I mean, just to give a context for who he is. Uh, just a remarkable guy. Anyways, so uh, we go and, uh, and he gives us a lesson. And here's the lesson on living stones versus dead stones. I'm going to show you a picture of, uh, of him standing by a wall. He's, he's in a doorway. And we can see these stones because uh, walls... In, uh, at that time, 
were built out of, uh, sorry, wall, yeah, walls were built out of stones. That's just what their building material was. So here it's all, you know, uh, two by eights or whatever it's going to be. But there it was, um, it was stones. That's how you build. Now, Peter says, those stones that walls get built of, those are, those are you. Now, here's where it gets interesting. A dead stone, now let me put up another picture for you. A dead stone is a stone that's out in the field. Now, that stone that's out in the field is totally free. Uh, there's nobody around it. It can do whatever it wants. I don't know what stones want to do, but it can do whatever it wants out in that open field. It's free. The, uh, fr in, in, in Hebrew understanding, that stone is considered dead. Now, where this particular picture that you're seeing is shown is uh, this is actually where the Sermon on the Mount was probably preached. And what's interesting is that those stones were so big, nobody has ever been able to remove all of them and, and kind of reclaim it as farmland. Because these dead stones, while they look very free and liberated, there's nobody around them telling them what to do, they're actually undermine the ability for that field to be fruitful. And so they think that actually that's why uh, the field was chosen that was chosen to give the, the Sermon on the Mount was not just because of acoustics and all, but because it wasn't a farmer's field. It, was, it wasn't useful for agriculture, and so it was a great place to have a church service. And so that's why they think it, it might be in that place. But all of those stones might, be, might have been nice to sit on for a sermon, but they're considered dead because they're unattached. But when we look at that, that rock wall, those stones in Hebrew culture are called living stones. Isn't that interesting? Why are they called living stones? Well, because they house relationship and love. They're not just scattered in a field. They're fitted together to create space for relationship to occur. And because of that, they're living. You and I are, are invited to be fit together in such a way to house the presence of God and relationship with one another. This is our destiny. To be saved is to be saved into relationship first with God and then with one another. Now, but here's the cost of that. You see, as soon as you want to be fit, fitted in, when we looked at those stones, especially that were around the doorway, those stones had to be chiseled and cut in order to fit together. All the stones needed to rub up against other stones. Pressure is going to be applied on your life. Well, this isn't fun, is it? To the modern Western mind, this is the restriction of freedom. I should be able to do whatever. I don't want to be chiseled. I don't want the rough edges of my life to be cut off, the, uh, the immoral edges, the, the edges that don't enable me to live with others. I don't want that. I want all of who I am or whatever. Well, in Christ, we cast off those things that undermine relationship. We let ourselves be chiseled and honed by one another. And the fruit of that is that we get to be fit together in a place that displays the wonder and glory of God, where we get to enjoy relationship with him and one another. So here's our second point, that love 
is only experienced in relationship. The dimension of love that Peter is talking about is this relational dimension of being a living stone fit inside a, a wall that can, that can house relationship. So, uh, you know, uh, I'll listen to people describe their relationship with our church right now, and it's pretty difficult, isn't it? To even identify ourselves with the church community because we can only meet online or in small groups, and so it's, it's harder to get that, that sense. But sometimes when I hear people describe their relationship with our church or when I go to other churches, they just say, yeah, I'm, I'm visiting here today. Well, that's great. Uh, at least you're visiting here today. At least you've decided today to show up. But get, follow me now on this. If you visit a spiritual house, a, a church community, a, a small group, you'll never actually experience love until you let yourself be fit in. You'll be a dead stone. And so you can kind of take your dead stone and visit places, but it's not until you let yourself be chiseled and fit inside of a bigger structure that you'll actually be able to experience love. And so uh, one of the things that I remember when I first came to Vancouver to go to UBC, I visited a number of different churches and I didn't feel very loved there. And I assumed that it's because they weren't a very loving community. What I now understand through verses like this is that the reason why I didn't experience the love of God there is I didn't let myself fit in. I was still a dead stone. But as I would let myself join, hear me now, nearly any, I'm sure that there's bad churches out there, but nearly any church community will become a loving community to the degree that I let myself fit into the wall. The problem isn't how loving they are. The problem is whether I let myself become living instead of dead. That's the real issue going on. And it's only as I become a fit in stone do I experience the love of God. That's number two. We need to be built on Jesus to be our moral compass. And then we need to be fit into something in order to experience love. Finally, what a temple needs, what a house needs is some doorways. Without doors, you just have a box. <laughs> Nobody can live in there. So we, needed, we need some doors. Now, how is this described in this verse? Let's look at, we're going to read out verses 9 to 12. And we're going to po point out two main things. But you, plural, remember, you're a chosen people. You're not just chosen as an individual. You're chosen as a community. You're a royal priesthood together. This is, I, I just have to say this. This is why we're doing these summer seminars so that you, you, we could all see how we all fit together and so that we could be blessed by the other stones around us. Ah, it's so important. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Do you want to be special? Join a community. You can't be special individually. We're special together. Wow, that's so foreign to Western thinking. Um, that, and here's the big that. Why are you this community, these living stones? That you may declare, that's number one, that you may declare the praises of him you called, who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Why are we being this community? That we may declare who God is to the world. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
You're not just a social club. You're the people of God. Once you've not received mercy, but now you, but now you have received mercy. This is the heart of the gospel. You are a, a mercy-based people. You're a community that is defined by God. Wow, what an incredible uh, foundation. The mercy of God, the authority of God is what we get to experience and then declare to the world. Dear friends, then I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Crave spiritual milk. The word of God, don't crave these other desires. They just divide you. And now here's the second point. Live such good lives among the pagans, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What are the two things? What is the, what is the doorway into the life of God look like? Into a relationship with God and others? It looks like declaring and demonstrating God's moral authority. This is what the church is to do. We are to be an opening that allows people to come in. And we, we are that opening to the degree that we declare, get this, I mean, this is, we declare the moral authority of Jesus Christ. Now that sounds more like a shut door than an open door, doesn't it? But here's what's fascinating. As we announce the moral authority of Jesus and then declare, uh, demonstrate it, we don't just talk about it. We actually demonstrate a better way of living. What at one point is offensive to people begins to warm their heart because they see what the mercy of God truly does inside of a human heart, transforming us to be far more loving than just being accepting and tolerant but actually to believe in changed lives that reflect the beauty and glory of Jesus because he is our reference point. You know, uh, as, we, as we raise our kids and, and do discipleship in our home and in our church, and, um, there's, there's seasons when our kids didn't like the moral authority in the home. They just, because it contradicted how they wanted to live. But as we practice and demonstrate true love, our kids come to see that it's way better than the reference point that they had for their life, which was, was all about selfishness. There's some opposition, have you parents noticed, as you raise your kids. But as we stay true to the reference point of God's word, as we practice being fit together, and as we declare and demonstrate to the world the love and authority of Jesus Christ, we do indeed become an open door. How does God's love thrive? When we demonstrate his love to even those who oppress us. You know, uh, it's really easy these days to feel justified in pulling away from people when they don't treat us very nicely. You go, wow, you have negative energy or um, you're not respecting me or I've really tried to reach out for you and you haven't reciprocated. 
And uh, you know what? I'm just going to move on to people who are open, who do want to, you know, experience God's love together. I, I, I gave you a chance. No, really, I did. And what we see in this passage is that the way, the way for love to truly thrive is when you love those who don't love Jesus or you. That they'll oppose you just like they opposed, they rejected the cornerstone, they're going to reject you. And it's, follow me now, it's the kind of love that is able to stay true and consistent in the midst of opposition that becomes a doorway. You see, uh, love that is just love when it's going well is barely love at all. But the love of Jesus Christ is true and solid in the face of those who are rejecting us. We We stay true to love. That becomes the kind of conviction that changes hearts and that becomes a doorway into the kingdom of God. Can we be those kinds of people that are open doors Not doors that are simply about acceptance, but doors that are built on the moral authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have been chiseled ourselves to reflect that authority and then we demonstrate that to people who aren't even necessarily interested in it, but we stay true to the word of God. And that becomes a kind, produces a kind of conviction and attraction that melts hearts and allows them to be knit in to the house of God. This is what Jesus Christ invites us into. Uh, For love to thrive, in conclusion, for love to thrive, Jesus must be our point of reference. We need to connect to others and we need to open our lives. This passage talks about salvation and to grow in our salvation. Well, this is exactly what it looks like to grow in our salvation, to grow more in Jesus being our moral authority, to be better connected and to be more open doors to those who may not even consider what we say to be good news, but actually to be evil. So let me ask you then, what are your morals founded upon? What are your morals founded upon? Are they founded upon Christ and his word or upon your latest feelings and opinions? Are you a living stone or a dead stone? Are you attached? You will not experience the love of God if you're a dead stone out in a field. You need to be fit in. And as you let yourself be fit in, you'll be surprised at the love of God that you'll experience. And finally, is your life a closed or open door? When, when you experience persecution or rejection, do you shut the door? Or do you stay soft and merciful? You've received mercy. Do you stay soft and merciful in the face of opposition? As you do, you become an open door. God invites us to grow in our salvation. We've been talking about the foundation of Jesus, loving one another and loving the world for as long as our church has existed because it's written, it's, it's, it's what the Bible prioritizes. Let's grow in it. Let's continue to deepen our foundation in Christ, to be better connected and to be more open doors, declaring a better love than what the world experiences. Oh, Father, I ask 
that you would give us the grace to be saved again today, to grow in our salvation, to crave spiritual milk, to grow to be more like you, that you would be our reference point, that you would be the moral authority in our life, and that by your grace, we could be chiseled and fit together to, to, to declare your praises and to reveal what love truly could look like in a community. And that we would be able to then take that love out to the world. And in the face of confusion and even opposition, we would stay true to being a merciful, kind, and generous people. That your name would be glorified. Your glorious name. And that they too could come out of the darkness and into your wonderful light. Father, thank you for continuing to save us and we receive your salvation in these three dimensions of, being, uh, of receiving you as a foundation, of being a wall, of being a door. We receive these dimensions of love, helping us to become more and more like you. We receive them today because of the work of your son. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.